Hey everyone, it's Christina, Tim and Sean here from The Good GP. You may have noticed that we have been a bit MIA this year. Well, we are back. But before we get into this episode, we have some changes we wanted to share with you, as well as some good news. Yeah, that's right, Christina. Since 2016, The Good GP has been produced by the amazing team at ROCGP WA, and we're so grateful for their support. In particular, we'd like to give a shout out to Hamish Milne and Lisa Francis, who have put so much effort throughout this time. Moving forward, The Good GP will be produced by the team at Talking Health Tech, a leader in the innovative health podcast space. The good news for you guys is that not much will change. It's still us, same name, same format, and we'll still be delivering short and punchy episodes on all things general practice. We're hoping that with this change, we can get episodes out to you more frequently and engage with you, our listeners, more. Speaking of which, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions for future topics, or generally want to say hey, drop us a line at thegoodgp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hi, this is Tim from The Good GP. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we're listening. I'm on Wajak Country in the Noongar Nation, and I'll pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Renita Siru-Sabatino, who's going to discuss Cushing syndrome. Renita is a clinical endocrinologist and works in chemical pathology and endocrinology for Western Diagnostic Pathology. Renita, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you again for having me. Renita, let's talk about Cushing syndrome. So what is Cushing syndrome and what are the causes? Cushing syndrome is a constellation of symptoms and signs due to glucocorticoid excess. These symptoms and signs may be quite specific to Cushing, so things like proximal myopathy, wide purple stray, thin skin are quite specific, but there are lots of also general symptoms such as obesity, hypertension, hyperglycemia, weakness, fatigue, depression that are much more common, just widespread and aren't necessarily due to Cushing. The most common cause of Cushing syndrome is exogenous glucocorticoids. So that's the most important thing to eliminate and consider all possible sources of exogenous glucocorticoids. Intra-articular joint injections often get forgotten about. Endogenous Cushing's is actually very rare, literally one in a million in the general population and is fundamentally a, a neoplastic condition. So it's either of the pituitary gland, in which case it's Cushing's disease, or of the adrenal gland. And then very rarely you can get ectopic ACTH secretion, which is typically due to a lung malignancy, although other cancers have been reported to be able to produce ACTH. So if you're, if you're thinking Cushing syndrome, think about exogenous glucocorticoids as the cause. Exactly, yeah. And just be very certain you've excluded any possible exogenous glucocorticoids. So this is in this is a good example, is a lot of patients are getting sort of herbal remedies from overseas. Sometimes they are laced with dexamethasone and other steroids. Quite troubling. Yeah. All right. So when we see Cushing's, how will it present? What are the common symptoms and what do patients tend to complain of? So unfortunately Cushing's can have a very insidious onset. Patients will just start to feel weak, fatigued. There'll be unintentional weight gain, 
they might feel depressed. If you ask them specifically, then they might start to say, oh, yes, I do have easy bruising or I've noticed my skin getting thinner. They may have symptoms of a pituitary tumour, retroorbital headache or visual disturbances. And also what you might see is inexplicable worsening of pre-existing chronic conditions like hypertension or diabetes mellitus. But unfortunately, a lot of these symptoms are quite vague, easily dismissed, put down to other things. And so late diagnosis is pretty common. Uh, There are also a few other disorders that can be associated with increased cortisol secretion, such as obesity, alcoholism, poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. And these can mimic Cushing's and cause what what we call pseudo-Cushing's. And that can be very hard to distinguish from true Cushing syndrome. So because of the vague signs and symptoms and the significant overlap with common conditions, Cushing's syndrome is actually one of the hardest diseases to diagnose. Yeah, so it's a, it's a hidden condition that's probably underdiagnosed in the community, Renita. Possibly, but also with the increasing prevalence of obesity, we do see a lot of weight gain and then cortisol requests following. So I do think it is being thought about and it's getting harder to differentiate, you know, early mild Cushing's from just your standard obesity, hypertension, diabetes, mellitus. Yeah, metabolic syndrome. Okay, so if we are thinking about Cushing syndrome, we've got a patient in front of us, what are the physical signs and the things in examination that we should look for? So in your general examination, you want to cover the basics like BMI and blood pressure, but the most discriminatory signs are proximal myopathy, Echimosis, so larger bruises, particularly if the patient can't identify the cause for them, and thin skin, which is apparently defined as less than 1.8 millimetres thickness over the back of the hand. But again, I don't typically have calipers and the ability to to check that. There are also uh, apparently central obesity and purple striae wider than one centimetre are also useful But with the increasing incidence of obesity, I think the likelihood ratio with central obesity must be reducing now. A lot of the other signs like buffalo hump, moon faces, plethora can be quite subjective and are common in obesity and in general as well. You've just got me pinching the back of my hand to see if my skin folds greater than 1.8 millimetres, Renita. (laughs) It's very small. Like I'm not sure that you would be able to tell the difference between 1.8 and 1.5 without a set of calipers. All right. Diagnostic tests. What are the diagnostic tests that really help us as GPs sort of move towards a diagnosis of Cushing syndrome? So I think it's important to remember that the diagnosis of Cushing's is really tricky. But most of the screening tests can be performed relatively easily in the community. So first off, I'm going to say that a random or morning serum cortisol is not a recommended screening test. And this is because a normal serum cortisol simply can't exclude Cushing syndrome. Cortisol levels fluctuate a lot and there's also a circadian rhythm as well. So there's just too much overlap between random and morning serum cortisol levels between patients with Cushing's and without. So the aim of screening is to demonstrate a loss of that normal circadian variation, a loss of normal physiological suppression of cortisol secretion in response to steroids, or just an overall daily increase in cortisol secretion. So 
these characteristics of autonomous cortisol secretion is what underpins the three recommended screening tests, which are the late-night salivary cortisol, the 24-hour urinary-free cortisol, and the overnight one milligram dexamethasone suppression test. Late-night salivary cortisols are generally easier to collect than, say, a midnight serum cortisol because we can just provide the patient with salivettes and the patient can collect the sample themselves. Two such tests are required to improve the sensitivity of the test to be equivalent to, say, one milligram dexamethasone suppression or the 24-hour urinary free. So that's why we always suggest doing it as a pair, which can be done anytime, really, consecutive nights or a week apart or whatnot. If for some reason you have a suspicion of cyclical Cushing's, for instance, you would get the patient to do them when they think they're having an episode. But that's really small print stuff. Most labs would provide the collection devices and the instructions for patients to collect either a 24-hour urine or a late-night salivary cortisol. So if you're not sure if your lab provides that service, you can just give them a call and ask. Labs can be a bit variable in how they supply dexamethasone. So again, just clarify with them what they're happy to provide. And Renita, just to hone in on, on that salivary test, if we're yeah. ordering it on the lab form, we'd order late-night salivary cortisol and that would, on the, on the request form in the lab, would be able to sort of process that and administer the, the salivates to the patient. Yeah, that's right. Well, at least we do here at Western Diagnostic Pathology. If you're somewhere else, you might want to give your lab a call and just check that that's what they do. With the late-night salivary cortisol, if you also then write times two, we'll usually provide two lots of salivates for the patient. Brilliant. Yeah. So all of these screening tests are listed as performing equivalently. However, depending on what you think the cause of the Cushing syndrome might be, for instance, if you've got a patient with an adrenal incidentaloma, then the overnight one milligram dexamethasone suppression test is supposedly more sensitive for subclinical Cushing in that setting. Whereas if you've got a female on the oral contraceptive pill, estrogen pushes up serum cortisol. We measure total cortisol and total cortisol is bound to cortisol binding globulin in serum. So estrogen increases cortisol binding globulin and will give you a higher cortisol level uh, when you're using a serum test. So the one milligram overnight dexamethasone suppression test. So in females who are taking the combined oral contraceptive pill, or if you have another patient taking exogenous estrogens for any reason, uh, it's worthwhile doing the saliva or the urine tests as they are more reliable in that setting. Interpreting the test results can be tricky as well. These tests have a sensitivity of about 90 to 95%, or at least that's what it says in the literature. So if there is a low pre-test probability of disease, which there usually is because of such a low background prevalence, a single negative test is actually a pretty good rule out. And a single positive test is more likely to be a false positive than a true positive. On the other side of the coin, though, if the pretest probability is high, so for instance, you have a patient with all the signs and all the symptoms at an adrenal incidentaloma, then it's possible for false negatives to occur because it's only 90 to 95% sensitive. So you then might want to do a couple of different tests. And then how do you determine pretest probability? Well, that's a matter of clinical judgment. And how does any one practitioner develop that 
clinical judgment if you can only see one case in a million. So it's actually a very tricky diagnosis to make, and it's pretty normal for patients to get quite a few different tests repeated over the course of time, hopefully under the watchful eye of an endocrinologist who has actually seen a few cases, waiting for the signs and symptoms to become unequivocal or for a majority of tests to agree. So if you don't get an immediate answer from your first set of testing, that's just normal. And obviously your lab will try to help you with the interpretation, but it's totally fine to just say, no, I'm going to refer this on to an endocrinologist because even if they're young and inexperienced like me, then I have lots of other people that I could ask for help. And then in terms of deciding the actual confirmatory testing, whether or not to try localizing the lesion, there are a multitude of tests for that. They can be invasive and it's always done in sort of a multidisciplinary case discussion setting. So it is just a really tricky diagnosis to make. But if you can suspect it and do appropriate screening tests, then that's an excellent start. Renita, I do have one question about diagnostic testing. So, you know, you mentioned before a lot of suspected Cushing's will be from exogenous steroids. Yeah. If we do suspect someone's got Cushing's from exogenous steroids, is it prudent to immediately cut or move to cease the steroids before testing or do you wait till testing's confirmed before you actually start reducing the steroid dosage? So in patients who are on exogenous steroids... It will be like they've done their own one milligram dexamethasone suppression test. So they should have a suppressed cortisol level. So if you're suspecting exogenous glucocorticoid excess as the cause, then that's like the one time that you would want to do a morning cortisol or a random cortisol and see if they're really suppressed. That also gives you an indication of, you know, if their whole hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is suppressed, then you need to be cautious about how you go about weaning the steroid so that they don't end up being adrenally insufficient. So you wouldn't go ahead and do any screening for Cushing syndrome until exogenous steroids had been excluded. So they'd been weaned off their steroid, they'd stopped their herbal preparation. You were confident that they were not getting any exogenous glucocorticoid because it's the actual medication that they're taking that's causing them to become Cushingoid. Mm. But in terms of their own endogenous secretion of cortisol, they will have shut that down. Right. And Renita, finally, if we, if we are assessing for Cushing's, what are the complications of Cushing's that might be worth checking for either before or after diagnosis is confirmed? So the top three would be diabetes mellitus, hypertension, osteoporosis. Patients may also be quite susceptible to infections. And it's important not to forget that mental health presentations are possible. So recognizing and treating major depression or even psychosis. And then in women, they might ex be experiencing PCOS type symptoms, menstrual irregularity, hirsutism, acne. Those would be the main complications of Cushing's to look for. The aim of treatment would be obviously to reduce the glucocorticoid excess, which may help to alleviate some of these problems. So glycemic control should improve again, blood pressure should improve again, but the ongoing treatment will require ongoing monitoring and treatment of those complications as well. Fantastic. Renita, that brings the episode to an end. 
thanks so much for joining us. Thank you again so much for having me, Tim. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions. 